0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to 4th Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2 in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and the, I am the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at the University of Technology Sydney and my producer is Anthony Dockrow and a big thank you to him. In this edition, we are going to ask some tough questions of arguably the most popular person in Australian journalism. And he's not even really a journalist. He's a former journalist. Uh, these questions include, what do we make of the current parliamentary inquiry into press freedom, judging from its first few days of hearings? How would you go about spending $100 bucks to support uh, journalism and journalists to do their job? Uh, and what are the biggest challenges facing Australian journalism today and how do we fix them? Uh, there's going to be a lot, and there's going to be a, uh, a huge plug at some point in this uh, recording. So, you have been warned. So, who is this popular guy? Well, you might have guessed it. Welcome to the show, Mark Ryan.
1: Thanks, Peter. Good to
0: be here. And for those who don't know, Mark Ryan is the director of the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. He's a former journo and a fixer for. Westfield Supremo Frank Lowy and the former Prime Minister Paul Keating. And before we get started, Mark, I did want to ask you a quick question about uh, Paul Keating because uh, Paul Keating had some very robust ideas about journalists and journalism at times, and he wasn't um, uh, at all shy about sharing those ideas. Did any of that rub off on you?
1: Uh, inevitably, I was. I was quite young when I went to work with Paul. I think I was in my mid twenties. I had come from working uh, in the Victorian government. I ran the Victorian government media unit for a few years, so I wasn't exactly totally green, but um, certainly working for Paul did open my eyes to new ways of doing things, new techniques, if I could put it that way. (laughs) Um, And I think a lot, for those who did not experience uh, Keating up close, in other words, if you were not a member of the Canberra Press Gallery, you could be forgiven for thinking he had a quite a one-dimensional... Mm. Way of dealing with the media, which is uh, far from the truth. He actually had a very sophisticated view of the media, and he, his starting point really was that to achieve the reforms he he was setting out to achieve, he needed to bring the media with him. And he set about uh, even before he was in government developing those relationships mm. with, particularly with the the doyens of the press gallery at that time. Mm. So people like Laurie Oakes, like Paul Kelly, like yep. Michelle Grattan, and yep. others. And so he had very long-term, intimate uh, and sometimes complicated relationships with those people, but nonetheless underlying the relationship, despite the ups and downs and and the occasional conflict, there was, I think, an abiding respect between the two sides. I think the media, the press gallery generally saw Keating for what he was and what he was trying to achieve and knew that underneath it all... It was coming from, in a sense, a good place. It was well-motivated. Mm. It wasn't aggression for aggression's sake. Uh, it wasn't um, uh, trying to heavy journalists for the sake of having journal- journalists. It was always in pursuit of a greater uh, goal. And I think that was recognised by the media. But to answer your question, yes. Um, and uh, because I guess- did, uh,
0: Just on that point, he didn't suffer fools easily.
1: No, yeah. he didn't. But, some of
0: those fools were journalists. In yeah, his, in and, his and he
1: was famed, and, and, mm. and, and rightly so, for um, getting stuck into journalists on a reasonably regular basis. But I can share one little anecdote that I haven't shared before. It was one of my, on one of my very first days in in Keating's office. I was sitting there as a wide-eyed young press secretary and Keating's habit was to wander into my office when he came into the office each day and look at the newspapers and he asked me, uh, mates, is there anything in the papers today? And I made the mistake of saying, oh, Michelle's done a column on X. So he quickly flicked through the pages to Michelle's column, read the column, went incandescent with rage. Uh, instructed me forthwith to get Michelle on the phone, which, of course, I did. Handed the, uh, the receiver to Paul, who then spent the next 35 to 40 minutes uh, lambasting Michelle and, uh, and pointing out all of her faults and uh, so forth. Uh, he then slammed the receiver down, looked at me. I was ashen-faced, <laughs> uh, my jaw hitting on, uh, on the desk. And he looked at me and waved his arm and with a laugh and he said, don't worry about it, mate, she's got to hide as thick as an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> and he was and, dead right. And he was right and it was a good introduction to the, uh, the rough and tumble of... of Canberra media management in that sense. That is, the journals played it hard, but so did the politicians. And it Whoa. wasn't only Keating. I think it was uh, across the board. Oh, totally. But it was, yeah. it was the rules of the game. It was the, the terms of engagement, and mm. they were well understood. And yes, it could be very bruising at times, but it was a fantastic... Just a, a, a fantastic school for mm. me to come up in.
0: Were you? I, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but were you there to the bitter end, As it were,
1: Not the bitter end. I joined Paul, I think it was late 88, early 89, and left his office in 94. Okay, yeah. not quite. Yeah, okay.
0: Well, you had the, uh, the sweetest victory.
1: It was great. It was a terrific time to be there. I often say I managed to concertina into half a dozen years, uh, what felt like 12 or 15 years, it's because about. we had the tail end of the boom of the 80s. Uh, the recession, mm-hmm. uh, the leadership challenge with Bob Hawke, um, and then of course the uh, winning the unwinnable election in '93. So mm. um, there was a lot crammed, and then multiple state elections and other other events in between times. So it was a terrific time to be there. And and Paul was a, a, an incredibly uh, generous um, uh, boss. I mean, he was incredibly loyal and and uh, a terrific teacher. Okay. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it served you in good stead, I think. It has. For you, if you're listening and you don't know or you haven't heard about the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism, um, in essence, it's a uh, Judith Nielsen is a Sydney-based philanthropist, um, most noted as a very long inst- a long interest in art and, and Southeast Asia, and um, I think she um, gives money to anti-slavery campaigns as well, and I think urban architecture and various things. So she has a you know, broad portfolio of interests. And about a year or so ago, it feels about a year, a year or so ago, she announced that um, it was going to establish this fund, this $100 million to support journalism and ideas, and, um, which was a remarkable day. I, you know, it was a fantastic day. And it was in my calendar. It was a great day. Um, and up pops um, the guy who's going to run it, Mike Ryan. Did you did – you, was this a long time coming, wasn't it? You were on the project for quite some time.
1: Well, about six months prior to the project mm. being announced, uh, Peter – Um, I was introduced to Judith um, in a a very different context. I had been working with the Lowy family for nearly 25 years. Um, Last year, the business – or the year before, rather, the uh, Westfield business was sold, so Uh – both I and a number of the other senior executives, um, uh, all, that was an opportunity for us all to explore other opportunities, as they say. As they say, yeah. And I was introduced to Judith, um, not so much with this project in mind, but it came up in our early conversations, and I offered to think about this issue of what might be done to support journalism and do some research and talk to a lot of people and come back to Judith with some uh, suggestions, recommendations. And um, Judith was very enthusiastic about that. I mean, fundamentally, I think Judith was looking to broaden her the range of her philanthropic activities. As you've mentioned, she's involved in the in in uh, a number of cultural pursuits, um, architecture, and so on, and she wanted to um, deploy uh, some of her funds to another. Endeavour, and she felt that journalism was uh, uh, was something worth looking at.
0: Was this, was there a prompt to that? Did it, was there one thing? Or? Well,
1: I think, like all of us, she uh, she's a consumer of news, of course, like all of us, and she she can sense, can see that uh, the industry is going through a massive change. Mm-hmm. That uh, the challenges facing uh, those of us who are interested in receiving quality information, if I could put it that way, trustworthy, reliable, uh, credible information, uh, that, all of that was under threat or under challenge. And I think if there was one single prompt, it was probably a visit that um, that Judith made to... Uh, she was involved with a, refu- a visit to refugees and saw their plight and saw some stories about how that particular issue was being reported and it didn't uh, square with what she was seeing. It was a as I thought. Where did she go? Where were the refugees? I think it was uh, North Africa, somewhere okay. around the Mediterranean. Okay. And, uh, and I think if there was one single spur, that, that perhaps was it. Um, and Judith has said in the past uh, on a number of occasions that from her point of view, there are many truths in the world. In other words, no, no story contains one single truth. There are many truths, and she was really interested in, in helping bring out these multiple... Truths.
0: No, it's a, it's a wise insight. There are no – there's no absolute truth, right? That's it. Yeah. She wasn't prompted by the election of Trump then?
1: Not to my knowledge. She has never raised uh, uh, the president with me in any discussion, so I, I guess <laughs> okay. not. All
0: right. <coughs> maybe at some other time. Uh, we're going to get back to I J in, in a second, but um, the news of the week, much news of the week as always, but the, the, one of the main events of the week in terms of journalism has been the first few days of the public hearings – of the very long parliamentary joint committee on security and intelligence hearings on press freedom in fact that's the shortened version of that uh, committee so that's the inquiry prompted by the recent raids on the home of the news corp journalist uh, nika smethers and then the abc the following day and it really goes to the essence of this question have we got the balance right between press freedom and protecting our national security. Mark, you were at the first few days, or certainly I saw you there on Tuesday. Uh, I think you saw the Right to Know Coalition, which is the media bosses together, and then the ABC. What did you make of that hearing?
1: Well, I think the fact that it's happening is a good thing. That's the Mm. first point to make, um, as well as the Senate uh, uh, inquiry that's underway. Mm. And I guess the starting point for me is that We, um, you know, this is not, uh, you know, others have made the point that we seem to be at a moment in time when it comes to press freedom and and these issues. And I think that's true. And there has been something of a perfect storm in the last um, couple of months. Some of these issues, as you know, have been simmering for years. I mean, issues around defamation, um, issues around FOI, the difficulty, the obstacles governments have continually been putting... um, in front of journalists who are oftentimes seeking just very basic and very um, yeah. mundane information yeah. and and you struggle to wonder why governments are, are working hard and spending uh, taxpayers' money to protect that information or keep it uh, under wraps. Ooh. So these issues have been simmering, but then, I, as I say, I think there's been a perfect storm when uh, you put together um, the, the so-called raids that occurred um, on the ABC and on uh, News Corp together with the inquiry into digital platforms that the ACCC conducted. Ooh, ooh. And then on top of that, there are even lesser known or other other uh, inquiries that have been underway that have had less of a profile, um, looking at things like the, uh, the deployment of soft power uh, yep. by Australia and the role that media plays or can play in that. So there's a, a number of these issues and inquiries have been um, swirling around and, they, and I think that RAIDs... Uh, brought it to a head.
0: Brought it to a head. So you're 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 a pretty astute uh, observer of politics. Uh, so you you know what's your feel? I mean, I don't. You know, we can't look into the future, but what was your feeling having watched that committee in action of where this this one's going to go? Do you think the government is in the mood to give?
1: I, I think it will go further than some of the um, cynics uh, think it might. Uh, I think. I think because there is now – it had, the raids have and, – and these other issues have um, not so much captured the public's imagination because I realise it's not, not a, uh, a kitchen table issue for, for most people. Nonetheless, it has certainly captured the attention and galvanised the media industry generally. And I think there's also a greater appreciation now of where Australia sits uh, relative to the rest of the Western world and other democracies and, and the culture that we have here. I, I mean, somebody at the hearing yesterday described this as a wake-up call. Mm. I think it was um, it was Hugh Marks or, or, or uh, um, uh, maybe Michael Miller. Michael Miller, M- yeah. Um, yeah one of a team. wake-up call. And, and that's right. And, and in a sense, I got my wake-up call about two years ago um, I was at, a, as it happens, a media awards night, the Lowy Institute's um, award for uh, foreign reporting. And I happened to be sitting next to Damien Cave, the New York Times uh-huh. reporter based here in Sydney. And he's been here now for uh, two or three years. And he offered up to me, unsolicited, the view that Australia was the most secretive um, uh, Western country he had ever visited or worked in. Yeah. It's, no, it was it a remarkable thing for him to say, right? Well, it took me aback yeah. um, because at that stage I wasn't as uh, immersed in media issues as I am today. Um, I hadn't done as much reading and it did take me aback. And I said, you've got to be kidding me, surely. Um, and uh, how prescient his words yeah. appear today. Yeah. Um, but he made the point – he was talking more, I think, about uh, the – just the generally the culture, the fact that you can ring up a government department here and be stonewalled over the most ridiculous and, and mundane – Issues. Right, um, which is
0: so not what happens in the US,
1: for instance. No, there's yeah. a there's more of a, a culture of openness. Yeah. And this has been a creeping um, development, yeah. I think. I don't think anybody in, in government, either state or federal, around the country over the past 30 years has set out in a conspiratorial way to, uh, to bring this about. I think it's just been... The FOI industry um, and and governments, bureaucracies moving as they do uh, more and more towards this culture to the point where where we're hung up about information that we don't need to be hung up about, just get it out there. I think um, James Chessel from uh, Nine Fairfax said yesterday that they'd been battling and spent tens of thousands of dollars to try and find out how much the New South Wales government spends on Vivid. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Now, right? why should that number not be out in the marketplace? Uh, and who cares? Yeah. Yeah. You know? um, well, exactly, yeah. So and,
0: and, and look, we had the evidence in the last, uh, well, today, in fact, saying so the AFP saying it still might charge... Uh, the News, uh, the uh, News Corp journalist, Seneca Smith, over the raids. I yeah, mean, it's, it's, I, I think. So we're getting to this point where journalists are going to be charged for, you know, face I, I don't, don't think that that that'll happen.
1: Um, I, I don't know, obviously, none of us know the facts uh, of the case and, and what's going on within the investigation, but I would be amazed if that were to occur. And I think also there needs, I mean, I can understand the level of concern in the media industry. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, right. That the media industry has been galvanised and is pushing the system, pushing the government for reform, because I think reform is long overdue. At the same time, I also recognise, as something somewhat of an outsider, I do also recognise that the media can get, the hyperbole can get a little ahead of itself on some of these issues. I do not think that uh, our democracy is under serious threat. I don't think the sky will fall in uh, mm-hmm. if, if serious reform doesn't happen, mm-hmm. much as it's needed. And so um, I think some of the commentary uh, from the media side can tend towards the um, uh, you know being more colourful than it needs to be, and a lot of the a lot of the um, straws that have gone on the camel's back over the past few years have come about not because government has in a very deliberate, conscious way gone in that direction. Oftentimes, it's because of knuckleheaded decisions by well, yeah. by individual police by by government bureaucrats and whatever but the some effect of it all i mean the, the issue well, with the, it goes adi- to the culture that doesn't it well the, it doesn't it doesn't i mean i you know the adani uh, example where i think it was yeah, the french, french journal. journalist yeah. were arrested now i i didn't see the footage but i'm i'm fairly sure that that was just a bit of knuckleheaded decision making on the ground by a particular policeman or mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. No, no and, fair point. and and i, I speak uh, the reason i'm speaking like this is because i've had personal experience having worked in a major global company where you have thousands of employees and it doesn't matter how many policies you have and how many guidelines and how many directives in our case we would still have the odd security guard who would Overinterpret the guidelines, would, right. would take initiative where they should not take initiative, and so forth. So, these things happen, but mm-hmm. just throw them into the same, you know, along into the perfect storm that I described earlier. They all go to add to, to point to this culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's get back to JNIJ and that first round of grants which have been given out. Uh, a few basic questions How much money have you spent so far, and what gives you confidence that the money was well spent?
1: Well, it hasn't all been spent yet. Yeah, I hope um, not. <laughs> uh, no, no, and it's and and we have been incredibly conservative, right. uh, Peter, in these early days. Um, so you haven't spent much at all. Right?
0: Can, no, not can much you, at all. Can you not give me much a at all.
1: And I will in a minute, but okay. I need to explain first of yeah, all that. Do. Um, uh, firstly, when when we sat down to think about how we might make grants um, to to media generally, mm. to journalism generally. The first thing signal that we wanted to send was that we were prepared to be um, incredibly open-minded and open to working with anybody and everybody. So, at one end of the spectrum, what you what you might call the big end of town, yep. um, we have developed partnerships with them, so News Corporation, The Guardian, the ABC, uh-huh. etc. But um, that spectrum continues all along down to a hyper local news initiative in Warrnambool, Victoria. The Terrier. Uh, the Terrier, mm-hmm. um, which we thought had um, a lot of things going for it and was as worthy of support as a bit of a test case, if you like, to see whether that particular model could take and get some traction as a, mm-hmm. and turn it into a going concern. So in between the big end of town and the Terrier in Warrnambool, we, we're supporting a podcast, we're supporting a community radio station in Roeburn, Western Australia. Um, some of our projects are focused offshore, um they're international projects uh some of them have uh, obviously focused domestically we're working with the herald and the age on a what we hope will be a really innovative uh series on indigenous issues mm-hmm. um so what we tried to do in the first round was just send a signal that we want to work with anybody and everybody and and hope to work with more over time um and uh, in terms of the amounts, what we've done with all of these first uh, projects, we've basically signed a 12 month agreement with each of these organisations. Um, some of those agreements we have signed in the hope and expectation that they become multi-year commitments, um, and some of them are obvious ones. So, for example, we're working with the Financial Review oh. to reopen their Jakarta Bureau. Um, I certainly don't think of that as a 12-month project.
0: You're not going to get um, much done in 12 months.
1: No, we won't. But what we're, I guess our philosophy is that we, we hope to, in these earlier days, provide an impetus Mm-hmm. Um, and then create, having created that impetus, provide sufficient support to get that idea and that, that initiative up and going so that it can then develop its own momentum, mm-hmm. perhaps develop other funding streams, and the Judith Nielsen Institute can then move on.
0: Can I ask the obvious question, and we will get back to the sum, but um, the obvious criticism is – Why does Rupert Murdoch need dollars from Judith Nielsen? Those sorts of...
1: Well, Rupert Murdoch doesn't, but his readers, the readers of the Australian and other News Corp publications and The Guardian and everybody else, Mm. uh, their readers deserve quality journalism.
0: But if it's a good idea, why don't they do it themselves?
1: Well, because you know better than I, newsrooms are strapped. Mm. I mean, the challenge I threw to the editors of all of the newspapers and and the newsrooms generally around the country was, um, I understand you're cash strapped, I know you're you're, um, under pressure uh, economically and staffing-wise and otherwise. What's on your wish list? What journalism do you think should be done but is not being done, and what can we do immediately to kick-start that? So, um, you know, the, the, the other point to make, I guess, from the Judith Nielsen Institute's point of view is that we want to reach the... Biggest audience possible uh, as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Impact and, uh, you impact. want impact, and, yeah. and those, those, those. Uh, whether it's News Corp or The Guardian or the mm-hmm. ABC, they have existing structures, platforms, and importantly audiences that we can reach very quickly. So we won't be working exclusively with those sorts of people. As I've said, we'll work with a range of mm-hmm. others um, that that perhaps on the face of it appear to be more deserving. But we are not a, in a sense, a, um, a charitable institution in that we are set up to, to look after only what people perceive to be the most deserving. Our mission, broadly, is to support quality journalism. Mm-hmm. And because this industry is at such a uh, is so volatile, it's probably at peak volatility right now. Um, we are being very disciplined about not predicting where the future will go. Uh, we're not predicting how quality journalism will be delivered in a year's time, let alone five or ten years' time. And so we want to remain nimble, flexible, open to ideas, opening open to partnering up with as many people as possible. And to this point about whether we should or shouldn't support um, big existing commercial operators... The fact is that globally, um, news organisations everywhere are collaborating more and more and more, and we want to be part of that. Uh, Australia's a little bit behind the game. America, as you know, Mm -hmm. um, is is far advanced in terms of the role that philanthropy plays in journalism. You now have the New York Times partnering up with uh, ProPublica. Um, uh, Columbia School of Journalism, things happening at the BBC
0: with. in the UK, all those sorts of things. That's yeah.
1: right. So um, I think people shouldn't be so hung up about whether or not we're supporting News Corporation or the Guardian, uh, and instead focus on the output, okay. and, and hopefully the output will speak for itself.
0: Well, let's hope so. So just just going just sticking on this a little bit. Four of those first round of grants went to Indigenous reporting. Initiatives, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. So, that, is that going to be a focus of JNIJ? And, second point is one of the criticisms of that was that even though the money went to Indigenous reporting, uh, the money actually went into the hands of white fellas. So, should it have gone into the hands of black fellas?
1: Well, not in every case. You
0: um, I mean not in every case it went into the hands of
1: No, white. I mean, we're, we're supporting the community yeah. radio station that we're supporting, okay, well, NADA Media in Western Australia, that's, that's a direct uh, payment. The uh, Indigenous series that I mentioned with the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. Um, mm-hmm. My understanding is that um, Lisa Davies at the Herald will be hiring a young Indigenous reporter and photographer, okay. who will then work with the wider newsroom. Uh, the wider newsroom will mentor those uh, those young reporters and photographers to work on this project. And you know, this remember, Peter, this is our these are our first baby steps, as it were. Um, we, we continue to meet with people. Uh, we met with First Nations, the umbrella media um, group, uh, just this week. Uh-huh. So th- those conversations will continue and we'll learn as we go. And. You know, the challenge for us is to make impact. You know, it would be very easy for us to, to give um, uh, lots of money away in dribs mm. and drabs on worthy but low-impact projects. You'd make a lot of
0: people feel good, but you might not have the impact. In
1: the short term. Yeah. And, and, you know, we will do short-term projects and we will do small projects, but in the long run, I think... Um, by dint of Judith Nielsen's generosity here, we can make a serious, meaningful impact in the long term and that's really the bigger challenge for us. Okay. Well before we go any further you better tell me how much you spent so far. Well it's it's again it's hard to give you a, a, a black and white answer, but ballpark, let's call it a couple of million dollars. Oh, yeah. But, um, but that said, as I, earlier I mentioned that we, would, you know, we were hoping that some of these projects will become multi-year projects. So, for example, the, the Fin Review project to open the Jakarta Bureau, that's somewhere in the 300 to 500 range. Yep. So if we did that for two years or three years, it yeah. adds up. To, but again, we didn't want, it didn't make sense to rush out and spend um, multi-millions of dollars until we learn a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, until we have more discussions, talk more, and and learn as we go. So on that point,
0: I mean, you've done a lot of travelling, uh, US, Europe, been all around, and obviously around uh, this country and New Zealand. Uh, where do you see, I mean, this is a big question and maybe just take a couple of chunks at it, but what do you see as the major challenges for journalism? Oh, um. Is it the business model? Is it the content? Is it... Oh, demand supply is it th- the digital platform? I think I the know. business they model. With it, the, bu-
1: really? the business model, yes, is a challenge. But um, you know that challenge started to emerge. I think very starkly. You know, whatever two thousand and five, two thousand and six. I think people seem to say was the Ooh. the tipping point. The classifieds. Um, and that's that. That changed in effect a what 150, 200 year business model. And um, what we're finding now is that. Um, People are there. There's uh, mass experimentation going on. Hybrid approaches are emerging all the time. Uh, Philanthropy combined with community-based support, combined with some commercial elements. So we're seeing a plethora of um, responses to the business challenge. I certainly don't. I think the days of people thinking of the business challenge being solved with a silver bullet are gone. That's not going to happen. Mm. Um, I mean, even, even mastheads like the New York Times and, uh, and the Washington Post have somewhat different business models and approaches, and they're experimenting all the time. Um, you know, the Times is getting into video content, doing deals with Hulu um, and so on and so forth. So I, I think that this experimentation will continue apace, When I say we're at peak volatility, based on absolutely no scientific evidence whatsoever, I sense that we probably are there now and that things might just maybe, possibly, be about to settle a little. Yeah, maybe. Um, You know, it was only a few years ago people were were predicting the demise of the New York Times and look what's happened there. Mm. And even if you extract the so-called Trump bump that the the Times seems to have enjoyed, it still seems to be somewhat successful. So, But, of course, a lot of newspapers,
0: local newspapers in quite large cities have, are under a lot of strain in in the US and this country.
1: They are. And, um, and I think, you know, you talk about challenges for journalism. That's a huge one uh, in Australia, the, the um, challenges facing regional media. Mm. Um, and... And I think people are turning their minds to what possible solutions they are, and I think it will be horses for courses. What works for Warrnambool, Victoria, won't work for Newcastle or Townsville Mm -hmm. um, and so on. Some markets will be more amenable to radio and television and vice versa. So there will be no um, neat cookie-cutter solution to regional journalism. I think it will take a lot of... A lot more discussion, a lot of hard thinking. We need to see how the ownership changes shake out. Uh, as you know, Fairfax has just offloaded um, their regional portfolio. Um, there's a lot of turmoil going on in the broad uh, commercial broadcast uh, yeah. uh, area in regional Australia. That doesn't need to be all bad. Uh, the outcome of that, I, th- I in fact think that there'll be uh, a lot of good will come out of that, and it has focused people's minds both in government and in the commercial sector, and in our case, philanthropy as to what the solutions might be. And that's, Could, that's certainly on our agenda as to what role we might play. in that Yeah, regard. I was
0: going to ask you that because how do you see, mm. for instance, so the Anthony Catalana group buys 170-odd titles from you know, Fairfax, a bargain price, an absolute bargain price, $115 million plus $10 million worth in advertising for a group that was valued uh, less than a decade ago at $3.2 billion.
1: He's a good businessman. He is
0: a very yeah, good yeah. businessman. Do you see... Getting to bed with people like Catalano in a kind of holistic way, you know. Like yeah, I a think so, but,
1: but not just him. I mean, in the in the first instance, um, I mean, what I would like to do, what I need to do, is talk more to these people and maybe even have a convene a a, um, a discussion with a number of them. You know, we have McPherson Media, we have mm. um, uh, ACM with Catalano, mm. uh, you have the commercial broadcasters, uh, yep. and there are others I know. But um, and and the Department of Communications people I know have have been putting their minds to some of these issues as well from a policy point of view. Mm. Um, And I think it it would do the industry well to just take a breath and sit around a table and talk through some of these issues at a strategic level. There will always be and should always be uh, the competitive urge. Um, We should not be doing things that undercut that. But at the same time, I, th- I feel that there are many things that could be done where those sorts of people could get together and share resources and share ideas and collaborate in ways that, um, uh, that are good for everyone. Okay.
0: Let's talk about one of our favourite subjects on this show, which is uh, digital platforms, Facebook in particular this time. So uh, we've done the last two fourth estates on, on the uh, Digital Platforms Inquiry by the ACCC, and of course, it's a wonderful listen. I'm, I, I'm going to plug my own show here. But um, um, this week, we gained another kind of, uh, maybe a straw in the wind, uh, a story in the Wall Street Journal, which suggested that Facebook uh, was moving towards some sort of content licensing deal with maybe the Journal, Bloomberg, ABC News, uh, US, that is. Um, and there was even had a figure in it, $3 million Um this I'm assuming. I mean, there's a lot of uh, supposition in this whole story, but I'm assuming that a similar thing would be happening here if it happens. Uh, what do you make of that? Is that just sort of is that a good thing? Is that legit? Is it more guilt
1: money from Facebook? Well, whether it's a good thing or not, it's not really for me to say, and I certainly can't hold myself out as an expert in this uh, in this sector. But it sounds like um more of the same in the sense that the scale, if what 's been reported is accurate, the scale of it doesn't really no it doesn 't suggest that it's a game changer yeah. for either Facebook yeah. or for the media outlets but But you know it's an experiment, and you never know where these experiments might lead. Um, I think it's a little too simplistic to talk about what Google and Facebook do as guilt money. I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. I'm sure, you know, in many cases, these, um, their expenditures in these areas are, come under their, their PR or marketing budget. But, um, look, it's money that's flowing into journalism. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and who are we to, uh, to scoff at that? So as long as, you know, safeguards are in place and the transparency is there and people know where the money's coming from, uh, then that's a good thing.
0: Sure. What do, you, what do you make of this, though? If Facebook suddenly has licensed all this content, so it's going to be, in essence, producing its own news section, so doesn't that make it a publisher, which is the one thing that they've been very much at pains to avoid being called?
1: Well, I'll just join the conga line of people <laughs> that uh, think that they should be called publishers. I you mean, believe uh, they should be called yeah, publishers? of course they should. Oh, interesting. I mean, uh,
0: so, uh, they, but uh, why not? Why not Judith Nielsen can give them some money uh, if they become
1: publishers. Give Facebook? <laughs> well, you never know. Look, I, I've I've had very good, uh, productive conversations with our friends at Google. Yep. Uh, we're not about to to you know do a project with Google, but I wanted to learn more about what they were doing, and and the anecdotal feedback I've had from some of the things they're doing under their Google News Initiative have been very positive. So. You know, there's there's no point wishing them away. They no, are here. No, I agree um, with you totally. People use it, and um, if they if they want to participate in journalism uh, and do it in a transparent way, then...
0: Yeah, so be it. I mean, I should add at this point that as the Centre I co directors receive received money from both Facebook Facebook and Google, yep. as well as the government sector. And that uh, one thing, just to finish on the ACCC, uh, your submission, well, the Judith Nielsen submission to the ACCC inquiry... Broadly said, hey, we need more different and new philanthropic ways of supporting journalism. Uh, in the final report, there was sort of a hint, well, not more than a hint, but it was one of the recommendations, so it was sort of didn't have a lot of detail to it. What do you want to happen in terms of that?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not qualified to get into the uh, detailed legislative drafting, but, no. but fundamentally, um, it's very hard these days, uh, as, as things stand, for people to give money uh, to journalism and get a tax deduction. So you can give money to a range of other worthwhile causes and get a tax deduction but not for journalism. And I think there is a creeping realisation uh, abroad that... um, you know, perhaps journalism does play a fundamental and important and fundamental role in our democracy. Do you see that through the tax system though,
0: right? So yeah. the, the ACCC basically said, let's try and make it easier for journalism to get a charitable status. Correct. And you'd yeah. support
1: that. Absolutely, 100%. And um, I mean, yes, there needs to be, uh, it needs to be ring-fenced, there needs to be a criteria set and so forth, um, but you know, there are more complicated problems have been solved by government in the past, and and I just think the time has come. You know, people, our, our politicians can't stand up uh, on platforms on important occasions and make grandiose speeches about Australian democracy and how terrific we are, unless they're prepared to support it well, in a meaningful way. And this point. is what this is one way they can do that.
0: So, Mike, there, there are some uh, common misconceptions about. Judith Nilsson, right? What, what what do you get that's sort of not quite right?
1: Uh, well, the in, uh, in terms of the institute, the um, yeah, not... So some some people think that uh, or have the, have the idea that we're a um, you know a grant making organisation in in the traditional sense that we will have an annual round of applications and we will sift through those applications and make decisions about who we might provide funding to. That's not the way that we're approaching this. We are much more assertive. Uh, We will not have an annual grants program. It will be an ongoing process. Some of the ideas we think we will generate within the Institute, other ideas, yes, they'll come to us unsolicited, and others will be a meeting of minds in conversations that we have with people in the media. But um it 's not a it 's a matter of us uh, you know we and the industry collectively coming up with great ideas and then sitting down and working out how we can improve on those ideas before we make a decision to fund something so it 's not a passive it's uh, an iterative thing. It's iterative. It's not a passive uh, process. It won't have lengthy guidelines and lengthy forms to fill in. It'll be a much more informal, ongoing process where the Institute will, will seek to play quite a, an assertive role in, mm. in determining where its funding goes.
0: So very much unlike, uh, I think, from my mind to my mind, any other kind of grant process that exists, both government and non-government
1: that 's correct, I mean, and they tend to be they do over time ossify they become very cumbersome they 're administra- administratively very difficult to uh, to operate. And um, they're not nimble. They don't, we want to be mm. able to be flexible and move quickly, and when good ideas come up, leap on them uh, quickly and make them happen. So, okay. um, so that's the that's the philosophy we're bringing to it.
0: Great point. Well, talking about things supporting things, if you uh, have been watching SBS the last few nights and weeks, uh, you would have seen a great advertisement for a for a new event coming on in the Sydney Opera House, and um, I think this is your free plug. It's called it the antidote. Uh, what's your involvement with that? I'm, what's glad, giant- you ask,
1: I'm glad you asked me this uh, <laughs> difficult question, Peter. Yeah, it's a very tough question. One of the, the things – I mean, I should actually go back to, to first principles. The Judith Nielsen Institute will do three things fundamentally in its early years. One, we will make grants to get quality journalism done, mm-hmm. and we've spoken about that. Secondly, we've done some very uh, uh, detailed work on what we might be able to do to, de- to support the ongoing professional development of journalists. So not so much student journalists, but yep. career, mid-career yep. journalists. That's where the gap is. And um, I mean, just one example of where we might be able to help there is that uh, the work we've done has shown that the very, very best... Um, Courses or or, or um, materials, uh, educational uh, opportunities for mid-career journalists occur offshore. They're very expensive for Australian journalists to access. They're logistical, logistically difficult for Australians to access, and um,
0: so you mean offshore? You mean in the US?
1: Oh, in the U.S. and, and Europe and, yep. and beyond, and we we may be able to play a role in are you going to make one here. In, well, I think we could potentially collaborate with some of those providers offshore mm-hmm. and sit with them and see whether we can craft something that was uh, meaningful for Australian journalists uh, and and help bring them to Australia and so make we're it easier. Col-
0: we talking about Colombia, those sorts of places.
1: Well, Colombia would be one, but there are others. Um, you know, people that are now looking at things like uh, data mining. Mm-hmm. Open source journalism you know those sorts of things um, you know to being, I mean part of what we want to do at the Judith Nielsen Institute is to is to bring Australian journalists uh, provide opportunities for them to go out into the world but also to bring the world to Australia. And uh, and in that education space, I think we can do it. So grants, yep. education, thirdly events, which brings me to the Antidote Festival at the Sydney Opera House. I mean, this is just a, um, a wonderful opportunity for us in our very early days to promote ourselves, basically. Mm. Um, so
0: op- when is it on? It's, uh, it's on September, the,
1: isn't it? Yeah, it's on the uh, 1st of September, Sunday the 1st of September. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are the co-presenter of the festival. Uh, we have... Um, uh, curated three of the sessions, and each of those will have a focus on journalism. We're using this opportunity to bring to Australia our International Advisory Council, which includes some of the most senior and um, highly res- most highly respected journalists from around the world. Some of those will actually participate in the festival. So it's just a terrific opportunity on the most iconic platform in Australia, the Opera House to promote ourselves and to get people focused on and talking about uh, these issues and in fact one of the sessions that we have that we'll be hosting is called um, my crime is journalism Mm -hmm. and it will go to the very issues we were talking earlier about earlier uh, about press freedom and the role of journalists in society
0: we're going to talk to about one of my favorite journalists maria Ressa. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, Maria
1: Ressa will be here. Steve Cole, who's who's one of the most outstanding journalists and authors in the world. Now, currently the Dean of the Columbia School will be here and a host of others. So it's just a terrific opportunity for us to to bring uh, people from around the world to Sydney and involve them in our work.
0: Do we get tickets on the JNIJ website or the Sydney Opera House?
1: This There's is- a link there, but if you go to the Sydney Opera House right. uh, antidote website, you'll be able to get tickets there.
0: Okay, well, we're running out of time, but I have one very broad question. So let's pretend we're going to meet again in a year's time and we're going to talk about the Judith Nielsen Institute of Journalism and what's happened in this year. Paint me a picture.
1: Well, we'll be able to talk in far greater detail about the what has been produced for a start. So those projects in Jakarta, in the Pacific, the Indigenous program, the community radio program in WA will be able to tell you how they've gone, what worked and what didn't work, because not everything will go according to plan. It never does. But what I hope to be able to at least foreshadow in 12 months' time, Peter, is... Uh, perhaps the way we're thinking about some larger projects because what I've described in terms of the grants and uh, the education programs that we talked about, they will be our kind of, if you like, routine mm-hmm. core business. They'll be There'll be a portfolio of activity that will be continually refreshed and renewed or extended. That'll be our, our day-to-day job. The big challenge that we have over the next couple of years is to really think deeply about what can make a meaningful impact you know, what are the perhaps two, possibly three big ideas that we can get involved in? Mm. Those will probably involve us collaborating with others, both here and around the world. But nonetheless, that's, I mean, it's a great challenge to have, but it's also a very difficult one in this volatile market that we're talking about. So we have the opportunity to make a real statement here um, uh, for journalism, but also for Australia. I think we can we can do something truly unique at the Judith Nielsen Institute that will get it recognised globally. And uh, hopefully, if, if we might not have that bedded down in 12 months, but we may be able to at least flag a few some of our thinking at that time.
0: Okay, well, that's a diary date. I will see you, Mark Ryan, in a year's time. I'll probably see you next week, knowing the number of times we run into each other. But, um, Mark, thank you. The head of the Jonathan Nielsen Institute for uh, Journalism and Ideas. I like the ideas bit as well. Um, Thank you for your time.
1: Thanks very much, Peter.
0: That's about it for this week, but make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media and politics and a few things in between. At your leisure and we'll be back uh, at the same time next week. But in the meantime you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is Fourth Estate AU and my, big thanks to my producer Anthony Dockrell. My name is Peter Frey and thanks very much for listening.